Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor, where those who think outside the box can create unique football bets from a combination of markets. Create your best bet with the innovative BetVictor Bet Builder. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hi, my name is Jonna, and I play football for Chelsea FC and for the Swedish national team. And you are listening to the Blue Day podcast. So, fellow Chelsea supporters, we are back for another interview with the great Harry Harris on his memories of Chelsea Football Club. Of course, the first interview we did was in regards to the books of the Chelsea Revolution and how Chelsea changed from the spring of 2003 to the summer of 2003. Now we're going to talk about some books in particular, but also events and news that occurred throughout that time of Chelsea's history. In particular, we are going to talk about the 96-97 season and we're going to roll on and talk about Viali's season when he was in charge of the 98-99 season. So to begin with, welcome again to the Blue Day podcast. How are we? Yeah, fine, fine. On this wonderful morning, uh, I've got my diary full of events I'm going to this evening, you know, and the uh... Deciding which restaurant to book, you know, <laughs> usual. <laughs> Your diary's the same as mine, then. Yeah, that's why I'm sitting here talking to you all day. <laughs> well, let's get started, shall we, Harry, if we can. Let's go back. I want to sort of go back to the summer of 96. Of course, it was Euro 96 at this point. You know, England national football team was doing fantastically well. And we English... Actually, can we actually go back there, that'd be lovely. <laughs> that, that would be nice, wouldn't it? I'll, I'll freely admit, you know, back when times were much more, you know, much more nicer, shall we say, you know, no COVID around. And I think life was a lot easier back then, wasn't it? Okay, well, take me back metaphorically then. I'm happy. Yes. <laughs> um, obviously, English football was changing massively around the summer of 96 and the likes of, you know, the, the Bosman ruling, of course, changed a lot of things when it came to footballing transfers. But in regards to Chelsea in particular, Ruud Hullet was there as a player first season in 95. He then got the position as head coach from Glenn Hoddle. In in the media's terms, what was the reaction of you know having Ruud Hullet become the Chelsea coach from Glenn Hoddle? Was there sort of a, a much of a shock around that? And what, what was sort of the inkling from your point of view, how it would go? Well, my guess was that uh, Chelsea fans thought 
the only way that Ruud Gullit was coming to Chelsea was the fact that um, his knees were all shot to pieces and he was getting on a bit. And um, they didn't probably think this was the real Ruud Gullit. It was probably um, coming along as a bit of a stunt or you know, maybe for a half a season or... I think they were probably baffled by what was going on. But, you know, I, I, in my job at the Daily Mirror at that time, you know, travelling around and, and going to European games um, for a variety of reasons, you know, um, I, I was watching Rud Gullit at that time. And, of course, he did have his knee problems. But, you know, he, he was one of the world's greatest ever footballers. Um, and, and, and to watch him playing uh, for Sampdoria or Milan, you just saw a greater player he was. And of course, coming up to the Euros and uh, Holland, you think of the, the, the great Dutch teams um, of that era. Uh, and uh, of course, Rick Gullit won the, won the, uh, the Euros with, um, with Holland, captain of Holland. Uh, magnificent specimen of a footballer, uh, but not just a, any kind of football. You know, he, he played as a sweeper. He played a creative midfield player, plays a centre forward, he could play on the wing and, and, and you wouldn't notice any particular difference in that. You know, he was just sublime wherever he played. You know, he was the epitome of Dutch total football. So for me, coming to Chelsea, <clears throat> coming to English football, my immediate thought was this is, this is going to be worth watching. So uh, um, I was determined to turn up for the first game and played against Everton where he played as a sweeper, and I, I was determined to see virtually every game I could. Mm. Um, I also uh, wrote my first of four books about Rudd, um, and that was a biography uh, of him. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it really is almost impossible to imagine what the world in this and this country and football was like back then. But I went to all the, all the top publishers, and eventually one of them actually said to me, look, unfortunately, books on black people do not sell. And um, uh, that surprised me a bit, but, you know, should I be shocked? But uh, anyway, I did find a publisher who was willing to take it on, and um, it was a massive bestseller. And I followed um, Rudd, uh, meticulously, as I said, I was going to, that was my intention, uh, and listening to him and, and speaking to him, and he got to know me in all the press conferences. Those days, you know, the, um, the the morning papers after the the, the main press conference would, would have a session with the manager and, and one or two players, but it was a very intimate one, you know, in the corridors and you know, in, there were less of the regimented press conferences that you get now, more of, of getting to actually know somebody, um, and, and in a very small group, so eventually he knew who I was, um, and I, I told him I'd written a book about him, and uh, uh, he was very conscious of his uh, image rights and um, you know he, he discussed all his contracts with Ken Bates and in the terms of Neto and uh, it was the first time I think in this country when anyone had heard of that but uh, we, we got to know it quite well after that um, and uh, but I said to him look I've written a book about you but you know it, it won't detract from your image or your image rights or your commercial rights whatever it is not that he was worried it was, in a fortune, that earns a fortune. I said, I'll tell you what will happen is eventually you'll be writing your autobiography. And of course, um, I came to him with an offer for his autobiography. And he said to me, you know, at that time, uh, he was playing into his golf and he was enjoying his leisure time. He was going around London. He really enjoyed it and didn't really want 
take time. I said, look, I'll tell you what, uh, you give me four one-hour sessions and I will write your autobiography. And he said to me, that's not possible. I said, no, 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 I've written a lot of books. I I, I will do that Four, four hours, four times, sorry, four sessions, one hour each, and it's done. And he said, okay, I'll do that. So um, he would uh, come to our flat. My wife and I lived in uh, Elm Park Garden, 500 yards from the bridge. Mm. Uh, so after the training, I'd come to the club, doing whatever he had to do for a limited period of time. Around about five, five o'clock, he would uh, pitch up at the flat. And uh, we had a massive great big green sofa, remember it, green and white, green and dark green striped sofa, but it was a huge one. And he sat, sat on there. And we started talking. This was the one, first one-hour session. Round about midnight, the wife saying, is he ever going to leave? <laughs> <laughs> Once he started, he could not stop talking. And wow. he was fascinated to listen to it. And um, eventually, midnight, I think we just said, oh, oh well, I could be up early, you know. Oh, midnight already, I've got to go. So he walked down to the bottom of the flats and walks out of the flats. And he was obviously heading back to, and he was going to walk, I think, but he wasn't far away. He lived, he lived in Chelsea as well. And you could see, we went on the balcony, you could see a few people going, nah, it can't be. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was rude. They just had to have a look at just a second time just to go, really? Did he, did he just walk past us? <laughs> yeah, he did. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean... Obviously, I, I was I was a bit sort of too young to remember when Ruth Hullet took over, but I remember obviously as I sort of became a Chelsea fan, the the amount of enthusiasm Chelsea fans had because of this rude revolution that was that was sort of taking shape at Stamford Bridge. But Chelsea obviously appointed him. Were there anybody else in in the pipeline that you might have remembered that? Chelsea were obviously talking to as well because the names that I read on your book and I was doing a bit of research as well for this interview, the likes of Terry Venables, George Graham and one Arsene Wenger. Was there any truth to the rumours? Of- well, I spoke to Ken Bates about it at the time and since, you know, and um, you know what Ken's like. He, you know, <laughs> but yeah, of course he's all like sounded out one or two people. Mm. And I think Ken being Ken, Thought to himself, well, first of all, you know, um, I, I'm probably an experienced manager uh, after Glenn Hoddle's gone to England. I didn't really want him to go. And it was a very short period because they they still thought he was going to stay. You know, Matthew Harding um, was very close to Glenn. Uh, they liked each other and he was propping up the club financially and uh, was making great progress with Glenn about the new contract. But I think I think they underestimated how... Um, how much of a draw England was for, for Glenn Hoddle. Um, uh, and, but I think it made it per- perfectly plain if, if, if England ever came along, he would go. And, and, mm. But they thought the contract was so good, he would stay, but it didn't. Mm. So clearly they sounded out one or two people, but you know the, 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 the value of managers at that time was escalating. And I think Ken thought, hey, that's a bit steep, you know. Mm. And, and he also had, we call it on massive wages as a player. And he thought, well, here's, here's, a, here's a clever thing. I can have a manager and a player and not, not, you know, dish out on a manager. And don't forget, you know, without Matthew Harding and even with him, the, the club were going through a, a tumultuous financial 
issues at the time. So um, I think Ken thought that was a clever idea. And, that, and I think what clinched it for him was that the, the, the fans, you know, there wasn't no social media there, but they got wind of the fact of all, all, all the managers that were being linked with the club. And um, I think in the, in the last game, they were all chanting for Rudd and they wanted him as the manager. Mm. And I think Ken Bates thought, well, all right, if, if, you know, if he's that popular. And I think he was, because as we talked about going back, one o'clock back, when we first started the discussion, what, what they must have thought was going to turn up. But if you watch that first game against Everton, when he played as a sweeper and was the best player in defence, best player in midfield, the best player in attack, you think, hey, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah. This is this is something special, you know, probably the best player that the club's ever had in its entire history. Back to Glenn Hoddle, if, if, if I can. What, what, did the relationship break down between Glenn Hoddle and Ken Bates at the point that Glenn took over? Because I, I, I can imagine, obviously, with what you've told me about Ken Bates, yeah, the last sort of two interviews we've done, that Ken Bates obviously weren't happy, as you've, as you've mentioned just now, that Glenn Hoddle was going to take the England job. But did the relationship become fractured between the two? Uh, well, with Ken Bates, it doesn't take a lot to have a fractured relationship, does it? Come on. <laughs> no, that is a good point. That is a good point. <laughs> regards to Ken Bates itself, sort of at this point, you know, it's it's been sort of discussed about his relationship with Matthew Harding. What was the relationship like at this point, you know, when Rude Hullett took over? Well... I, 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 I would say that probably Matthew Hardy was slightly more on board with it because, you know, he was a fan and the fans were back in wood and so he'd be back in wood and he'd be saying to Ken, you know, but all the fans are behind him. I, like, we were like, you know, what, 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 why were we looking for some, something else when we got it already here? Yeah. Obviously, Hullet coming in, he, he would have his own idea on players and one came in sort of quite early was Gianluca Vialli came in, he won the European Cup with Juventus. How significant of a signing was that for Chelsea? Huge. Again, again, you know, a world-class footballer, centre-forward, full of goals. But again, you know, not at the peak of his career, um, but, you know, um, a bit clever for English defenders. You know, there weren't a lot of foreign defenders then, so a bit, bit clever for the kind of level of defenders, even the foreign ones. That were in English football at the time, so a huge signing, I think. Uh, big personality again, uh, but they were great mates. You know, they played in Italian football for a long time together, mm. um, and, and um, they, you know, it, it would have been something that Rude would have particularly wanted. And without Rude Gullit as the manager or, or a presence there, I can't imagine Luca Vialli would have looked twice at Chelsea. Mm. Of course, they signed Roberto Di Matteo as well. They signed Frank LeBeuf. I mean, these players, I mean, nowadays, Premier League players, Premier League clubs, sorry, they go all over the world to bring in a foreign import. But but again, back in 96, a little bit unheard of that all Premier League clubs would look at abroad rather than find somebody from the English Premier League. What what was the excitement like, if, if you remember, f- amongst Chelsea supporters? And what, in the media, how did they see Chelsea's chances of success in that 96-97 season because of the signings they made and with Rude Hullet now in charge? Well, I, I, I think it's almost like a bit of an experiment. And I think the media were interested to see how it would work out, probably very sceptical. Um, but... Uh, 
you, you, you would gravitate to the club to find out what was going on. Mm. Uh, and, and it wasn't just the English press, the world press were gravitating to Stamford Bridge. You know, this was the pre-Abramovich era, but it was as exciting, mm. probably more so because none of these players were costing an awful lot of money because they were at the end of, of, of what, what was their fantastic careers. But nonetheless, still right at the top when they came to play in English football. Um so it, it, it was an experiment, uh, and it's certainly working in terms of entertainment. I mean, you, you just, it was just wonderful to watch the Chelsea football team at that time with so much talent in it. I think the, the, the one game that sort of springs to mind as well when you say that was the FA Cup tie against Liverpool of January 97, when Liverpool, I believe, were 2-0 up, and then Chelsea just sort of rampaged them forward and then obviously won, won the tie 4-2. Was you at that game covering it for the newspapers? Uh, I think you'll find I was. You but was I, there. I think what was, what, was, what was so interesting about it was that none of these players were interested in kind of um, the methodical style of football. You know, even the Italians that were coming in, um, they blended in very well with, with the kind of like super attacking footballs they had. And, and it was... Never going to be a dull game. You know, they were always going to be attacking. Uh, invariably, the ball was played forward. Not that they didn't have good defenders. You know, Marcel Desaye came there. You know, and they had some, later on, yes. some great goalkeepers. Um, fantastic fullbacks who could defend as well as attack. Um, so they, they were quite astute as a, as a defensive team. And, um, but they always were looking to go forward and, and and it was just a joy to watch. So who wouldn't want to go and watch him? Mm. Of course, that season as well with the excitement of the new players and, you know, again, Rude Hullet becoming the coach, obviously there was massive sadness and obviously the news that Matthew Harding tra- tragically died in a helicopter accident coming back from a game, I believe it was a League Cup tie against Bolton, wasn't it? What was your sort of memories of him? What was he like? <laughs> Again, people sort of I've spoken to in the past have told me how passionate he was of Chelsea. But just obviously for your memories, how big of a Chelsea supporter was he? I know, you know he's a director at Chelsea, but just sort of sum up sort of your best memories of Matthew Harding, if you can. Well, I, I, I've got to set the scene really because it's it, it's it's in context you, you'd understand this. But of at that particular time. Um, and I've had my ups and downs with Ken Bates, as you know. He's banned me from the club after investigations, you know, which got the club a record fine at the time. Um, uh, I've had two high court cases with him. I've been in the dock twice in, in high court cases with him. But at that particular time, <laughs> we were the best of friends. <laughs> you know, it was incredible. You'd <laughs> be hard-pressed to experience anything quite like it in life, or particularly in football, but certainly in life as well. So at that time, we were going out together. My wife and I were going out with him and Susanna on a regular basis, and we were very close. Um, but, you know, I'm going to set the scene. I was the chief football writer of the Daily Mirror. My, my mission was to find out what was going on. You couldn't do much better than sit down at an Italian restaurant or market restaurant with Ken, <laughs> get, get, get down a few bottles of Premier, Chablis Premier Cru and Sancerre as his favourite tipple, um, uh, to find out what was going on with it. <laughs> so um, with Matthew Harding, obviously, you're either in his camp or not. And, you know, other journalists were more, you know, campaigns didn't deal with them. They dealt with me mostly. So 
<clears throat> they would gravitate to, to him, knew him better than I did. But uh, it was quite had quite fascinating um, episodes with Matthew Harding, because of course he he, he would have liked me, uh, he'd like to have wooed me to come over to his side, to the publicity machine that he was building up against Ken. But I had Ken on my back all the time, saying, "Look, this is what he's saying about me." What are you going to do about it? You know, so it was a bit difficult. And, uh, you know, Matthew and I would pass each other in the corridors at Stanford Bridge and there were some funny looks going on, you know. Uh, but, you know, he did, you know, very polite and we did speak quite a bit. But, um, you know, I, I can't profess to have known him uh, that well mm. in the light of the situation that was going on. I see. Um, and, of course, you know, very sad that uh, what happened to him, obviously, I, I mean, from what I saw of him and talked to him and you couldn't, and I did talk to him quite a bit, you couldn't help but like him. Mm. But he, he, he did have his issues um, and he was, a, he, he was a bit strange at times. And you probably know those issues as well as I do, so I don't need to talk about him now. Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I was a bit of an investigative journalist at the time as well, you know, about the Chelsea um, Thing we talked about when I investigated other people as you know mm. um so um for, for me I'd just like to remember the guy you know who was passionate about Chelsea and just how I like to see him a fan in the ballroom he was but a very wealthy yes. one um, yes and, and had a lot of influence because of that wealth because the loans he'd given to the club um mm. uh, and the, the the new money in addition he was going to put in the development of the stands and all that sort of stuff uh, when the club were going through a financial crisis, he, he, he was a very powerful figure. Mm. The the game after the news broke out about his death was uh, Chelsea Tottenham on the Oct- October the twenty sixth, nineteen ninety six. Was you there at that game? And if so, you know what was guessing the mood was a real a sombre one at the bridge that day. Yeah, I mean. Um... Of course it was, but you know, generally the fans only know of the perception of people and you know, their reputations and what they're doing. Um, and we've had so many uh, icons of the game who passed away recently, or even at that yes. time. Um, and um, you know, the, the fans feel deeply about it, I mean, and it was a somber mood, no question about it. But, oh, yeah. um, uh, not much more you can say about it. Yeah. It was very sad when it happened. Mm. Mm. I want to talk about Zola later on, because obviously, of course, you did a whole whole book on the magician that was Gianfranco Zola. So I'll, I'll sort of talk about him just sort of briefly later. I, I but have his shirt signed up there. You can see it. I can, you. yes. I can, yes, that was... Um... He played in his last game, and I've managed to get the shirt signed. Fantastic, fantastic. Was that the game against uh, Liverpool in 2003? Uh, if you say so. <laughs> we, 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 we shall leave it on that. Um, so I want to sort of fast forward on to that season. Um, again, I, I was reading the book a lot for the last sort of week or so, and one thing that sort of caught my attention was it seemed as if, you know, you mentioned it just quite previous about Rude Hullet and Gianluca Vialli's relationship being a strong one as they both played in Serie A they knew each other sort of on and off the pitch a little bit but while I was reading the book it seemed that all was not well between the two you know it seemed that obviously Hullet was you know brought Vialli in and it was a case of Vialli was the you know the leading marksman but at times Vialli was on the bench a lot and Vialli didn't 
sort of take that too kindly. Was there, a, you know, was there a bust up sort of brewing and that occurred between Hullet and Viali that season? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. there was. Um, uh, I, I was fascinating, uh, you know, you, um, tales of Luca Viali um, having a cigarette on the sidelines when he wasn't being picked. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or, or having a drag in the dressing room or whatever, you know, he was, yeah, yeah it, was, it was, you know, you can imagine these two very, very laid back characters who were great friends, played golf together, you know, had a great time together, falling out, you know, <laughs> it was fascinating to watch, but um, yeah, interesting. Because there was one sort of description, the fact that Rude Hullet was on the touchline, Viali was on the bench and Viali wanted to be, quite far from Rude Hullet because he just didn't want to be anywhere near him. So it was a case of Rude Hullet was on one side of the subs bench. Viali was on the other, you know, right on the other side. And it's, it's quite fascinating to sort of read that and sort of, you know, try and picture yourself maybe at the stadium at the, you know, at the time, maybe Chelsea fans might not have seen it, you know, might not have realized, you know, what was going on, but to sort of read it sort of back all these years later, I found it was, it was fascinating that, as you say, two big, icons of the game and as you say similar egos and what led to it obviously had a falling out and it did I think affect the team sort of going forward because there was obviously some Chelsea players that were for Hullet some players probably was for Viali. Yeah man, that's no question about it but you know the Dutch mentality is quite quite fascinating because <clears throat> they have a, a fallout the drop of a hat you know and Rutgers it's had his fallouts as well you know he walked out the national team for a World Cup I was actually there at the press conference when that happened oh um, really okay yeah um, so you know they're not they're not adverse to a bit of a you know and, and to walk out of a World Cup when you're the, the country's best player that, that takes some something um, but he did from a point of principle and I don't know why he did it um, but uh yeah, it, it was fascinating to see, but you know, uh, uh, as a manager, Rupert it was evolving as a manager. Um, you know, he, he was he was not an easy manager. You know, he, he you know, like you, you look at Alex Ferguson. I'm writing a book about Alex Ferguson this year. He was not an easy manager for some players. He was a hard taskmaster. He, he'd, he'd, give, he'd give his players both barrels at times. You know, you couldn't mess around with with him. I mean, you couldn't mess around with um, Gullit as he was evolving as a manager. And, and we all recall when he went to Newcastle, he dropped Alan Shearer. Yes. For the big game against Sunderland, I think it was. I believe it was his last game as well that he uh, he puts uh, well, Shearer and either, Duncan Ferguson as well on the bench, I believe. It was either Shearer or Gullit. You, 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 uh, it was a pretty big shootout up in the northeast because they loved Gullit, taking them to the FA Cup final. You know what they thought about Alan Shearer. Yeah, um, you yeah. don't drop Alan Shearer. That's um, right. In a new car, at the new car, but he did. Mm. And uh, I remember speaking to him the day before he was going to do that. We discussed what the implications would be. And he said, "Yeah, I know." He said, "I know. I'm going to do it." Um, so, uh, I kind do of you think, it. sort of, based on what? His experience at Newcastle and obviously how that, with all due respect, maybe didn't go too well for him. Because I know the, the, the expectations when Hullet went to Newcastle, it was a case of, you know, he's going to try and transform Newcastle to where Chelsea was. So he would bring in the foreign imports. They would have, you know, success in cup competitions. Obviously, it didn't work out to that extent. Do you think 
that may be one of the reasons why Rude Hullet never got another job in England or he sort of maybe fell out of love with English football at that point? Ooh, well... Because me personally, I find it fascinating. That I thought he did well at Chelsea. Obviously, we're going to talk about later on, you know, the issues he had with Bates and obviously his dismissal. And then he went to Newcastle. It didn't obviously work out brilliantly for him. And then that was it. There was no more sort of jobs for him in English football. That And even sort of beyond that, I know he maybe took charge. I think one notable team, he took charge of LA Galaxy, but that was, you know, years later. Did that? Did he sort of fall out? Of, do you do you believe he fell out of love with English football after the Newcastle stint? Because I know I remember re- reading once that he he didn't like the press too much. He thought that he kept being hounded by the press and he wasn't getting you know enough alone time with him and his family. And he, all he kept doing was telling the press to go away. Was those sort of factors part of it? Do you believe? <clears throat> no. No, I don't think any of that. Um, I think that was kind of like impression at the time. I don't, I don't think that was the case. I mean, uh, uh, I, I think Ridgley is, is a complex character and it's hard to read. So I don't think I have a definitive answer. But if you're asking right. for my personal opinion, I think um, uh, he, he was keen to get back in management and he went off and he, he did more of his badges and he studied more and he wanted to be a manager. Uh, I don't think he was given the right kind of... Like, you know, like, um, they now call it project. I don't think he was cut out to go to Oxford or Rotherham or Middlesbrough or, you know, it wasn't cut out for a small time club. He's a big time personality, you know. Um, if if uh, AC Milan had offered him a job, I think they jumped in it. Yes, so, yes. Um, maybe if Feyenoord had offered him a job, you know, you never know, but... Um, I just don't think, um, you know, for me, had he won the cup final with Newcastle, I think the fans would have said, oh, well, if he wants to drop Alan Shearer, good luck to him, you know, Mm. get on with it. Um, But the results took a dip. He dropped Alan Shearer, didn't work against Sunderland and off he went, you know. um, And I think he was, I think he was a bit wounded by all of that. Uh, And I think, also, club chairman of going thinking, you know, high maintenance, uh, high price, um, and didn't go anywhere, you know. And uh, you, you, you've got to be very, um, uh, you've got to be very pragmatic and look at it as well. How many black managers was in English football at that time, or indeed now? Mm. So you know, you've got to look at a great deal of prejudice that was going. Well, people are still talking about it to this day. And, you know, as you say, what has changed in regards to black managers in football? Nothing. Mm. Rude Hullet did lead Chelsea to the FA Cup final in 97. Yeah, that was the game that made me a Chelsea fan. That was that that particular game. Um, It will live to some Chelsea supporters. It will live long in the memory. I'm assuming again. Forgive me for my assumption. Was you there at, at that at that game covering it? And <laughs> you was there. What, describe if you can the importance of this cup triumph for Chelsea. And you know, do you have any stories to share of that of that day? You know, both as a football supporter and as a journalist. Well, it gave my wife a great deal of pleasure being a Chelsea fan. That's all I can remember about it. Uh, but you know, it. it, it, it 
you know, it's 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 a job. I'm I'm paid to to sort of be unbiased to write about the fight. You know, it, 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 I'm concentrating on what I'm doing. But um, uh, Rudd had an interesting when I, when I wrote his autobiography, had an interesting take on it. Okay, you know, it was like it, it it was the first trophy Chelsea won in 26 years. That's a, that's a quarter of a century. So you can imagine how delighted all Chelsea fans were. But not only that, it was the first black manager ever to win a trophy of any type in English football. He was the first foreign manager to win a trophy of any type in English football. I mean, talk about glass ceilings and breaking them. He, he broke mm. them all. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he, put the, he told me he put the FA Cup, final, Cup down on the grass he pointed up to Ken Bates and said, there you go. <laughs> you know? Well, I've won for you. But he also said, you know, and he experienced this at the highest level of clubs, of Chelsea, but Milan, you know, big clubs. Um, and he said, you, you, you win something. And all the, all the owner and director thinks is, yeah, next season I'll win twice as much or three times as much. And they expect so much more. And he said, that's what happened to Chelsea. They just expected so much more. And it's so hard to deliver time and time again, particularly with limited resources, particularly a club like Chelsea. But they don't care. They want more and more and more. And the expectation is more. The demands on you is more. Um, and um, that's what he thought there was the reason why, you know, he was sacked. But, you know, I, I, I heard from Ken Bates other reasons. More about, you know, about the contract. Mm. Negotiations over the contract. But, you know, they seem to be going okay. Mm. Um, but um, there was also some private issues. And, and I told Rod Gulley about one of them. He, he, he was oblivious to it. But it, 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 it rankled very much with Ken Bates. And he, he felt he'd been personally snubbed. I won't go into details about why it's pretty... No, of course. Uh, of course, know, I, I understand that. Penny. I understand that. I've, I've written about it in one of my books. Well, I think you'll find it in one of my books. Um and uh, it was an accumulation of those three factors, mm. I think. Um, because, uh, you know, when, when, he got, when he got the sack, you know, so that first leg against Arsenal, and he, he was a bit lazy in the way he, he attacked that ball in the air. In so much, he's, you know, a big man like, he could have got it, he, you know, it skimmed off the back of his head and Arsenal scored. And it didn't look as though they were going to recover. They hadn't played very well in that first leg. They stacked him straight away, but, you know, they were still in, in that semi-final. They were in everything else. And Viali, complete novice, takes over exactly the same team and, and became um, the greatest trophy winner in the club's history over that small period of time, basically, with the same team. Yeah, Viali won the trophies, but it was, in essence, Rude Hulit's team. Look at it like that. But just last on the 96-97 scenes, before we do move on to, obviously, 98 and 99 Sum up Chelsea's season of 96-97 for you personally. Did you see it as a success for the club going forward or did you see it as, I mean, league terms, they didn't finish near the top four at all. I think they might have finished sixth for that season. But did you see it as a, as a positive season for Chelsea? Well, I, I think everything that was happening at that point, even the negatives were a positive because, you know, it, it was just... A, a fascinating soap opera that was going on there at the time. And we... we huge global names um, and um, you just thought wow you know it, it, Chelsea was the place to, to, to be for, for all sorts of reasons but mm. 
I, I think the, the, the problem really is that if um, the owners want more and more and more, the fans do as well. They think, well, what's next? What are we going to do next? Uh, so the, what, what happens is, as, as he said, common sense really, the expectations level rise far beyond the reason. That, that, that's the main problem. Mm. So that was the Rude Hullet book, The Chelsea Diary. If you can find it online, I, I, I do urge Chelsea supporters to find it. It is a fantastic read. And it, it's got, obviously, you know, stories about, you know, Chelsea team doing the recording for the FA Cup final song with Suggsy. It's got, you know, in-depth sort of game by game from that season as well. So it is is a great book. So I, I do urge Chelsea fans to try and find it if you can. Um, no, that's not going to be easy, is it? I don't, it's I don't not going to be easy, but <laughs> there, I, I'm sure. I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's an avenue to go down with that. Um, one the time, um, and now I, I would say of all the eighty books I've done, that's probably the best selling book I've ever written. Hmm. It sold sixty thousand copies. Oh wow! And. Um, I, I doubt whether you, and, and, and I know people, it's probably more of a collector's item now, and I've yes. seen it out there. It, it sells for, a, for an extraordinary amount of money, but certainly if you, if you can get um, mm. a, a pristine hardback copy. Um, so the moral of that is, <laughs> you should go and go buy my present books. You know, one day they'll be worth thousands. <laughs> yes, yes, we will talk about you. We will talk about your present books um, soon. But one person we didn't mention from the 96-97 season who came in a uh, 4.5 million pound signing from Parma was Gianfranco Zola and you know of course you did a, a book covering the, the impact he made not just to Chelsea not just to Premier not just to the Premiership but English football in general um you know again that book if you if you can find it at a good price I, I do urge you to spend the money it's a great book the first thing that got me while I was reading this book was the fact that it wasn't just Chelsea that were interested in him it was another London club in Tottenham were interested in signing Zola was there a, a, you know any chance that you know again looking back now that Zola could have maybe signed for Tottenham rather than Chelsea or were, again was that m- more of a case of this other team's interested so hurry up and sign this player I think he was always going to go to a place where he, he, he could recognise all, all the players that, you know, he, he played in Italian football. Mm. You know, he, 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 I don't think he had much knowledge outside of Italian football, personally. Uh, um, uh, and why would he? Um, but he'd it, 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 seen players who played in, in, in that kind of style of football and they were at Chelsea. Um, and it was a natural thing for him to do, you know. He, I couldn't have seen him signing for anyone else, but you know, other clubs would have been interested. But um, you know, they, they don't know more about Zola as well because of all the Italian connections. Uh, so I, I, I think it was pretty much a certainty. Hmm. Was you at Zola's news conference with him and Rude Hullet? You was. Yes. What was that like? Fascinating. That's nice. I think they had to get Zola a cushion. <laughs> uh, no, great, great, really. You know, I've uh, seen Zola playing for for Italy and in Italian football, personally, in, in certain games. You know, and it was, you, you knew what a great player he was. So, um, 
uh, it, it was only going to enhance what was happening at the time uh, at Chelsea. And, and, and he sure did, didn't he? Well, what a great player he was. Yes, yes. He, he, he was just a, a fascinating player in regards to he could maybe play, you know, again now looking at it, more in detail he could have played as a striker he could play as a 10 he could even sort of drop deep and maybe play out wide he was a for me a fabulous player and he also you know again as a Chelsea fan every time he got the ball you didn't know what to expect he was one of them sort of magicians on the ball so I mean you know at the time I think he was obviously deemed to be Chelsea's greatest ever signing Mm. Um, and that says something, considering with some of the players we've been talking about. But now, mm. since then, there's been some, you know, after the Abramovich era, you know, you've had players like um, Eden Hazard. Mm. I mean, how would you compare Zola to Hazard? Difficult. I would say, for me personally, I would say Zola was better at set plays. You know, I'd say, you know, I'd rather have Zola take a free kick than Hazard, personally. But you learned his free kicks from Diego Maradona. Yeah. And I, I just feel that, again, Zola, people are comparing him to you know, the greatest players, as you say, like Hazard. And I still feel that although those two are a little bit similar, I still feel Zola sort of offered a little bit more in regards to overall game. And yes, Hazard would change the game just like that, but I st- again, this is probably being biased because I grew up watching Zola, you know, as a Chelsea fan. But I just feel Zola offered more mm. as and a footballer. You've had players like Didier Dropper who have been so yes. instrumental in, in, in that era of success. Uh, um, uh, Frank Lampard and players like that, you know. So um, although Zola w- was deemed to be what bloody hell look at the player we've got now, there's been since then there's been some huge talents at Chelsea. <clears throat> It'd be hard pressed to, to to pick out who would be the best now. I think. I I would say that the one player who, when we signed him, I thought was definitely like a Zola type player was Juan Mata. I felt that when we signed him and where how Juan Mata played, I thought there was a lot of characteristics that I thought reminded me of Zola. And, you know, to, even now I'm still gutted that we sold him to Man United. But I just felt that if we obviously had matter for longer, he, he would have been that type of Zola play. He would have been the maybe the, the role model of the team, the guy that would drag the team from, you know, defeat all the way up to victory. Mm, well, yeah, mm. indeed. Mm. What was your interactions like with Zola? What, what you know, was he like sort of off the field? Was you know, is he sort of like? Because uh, I've heard stories that he's one of the most charming individuals you can ever come across. Was he like that and much more? What, what was your dealings with him? Uh, yeah, like that and much more. You much know, he more. came from very humble beginnings, and he was always very humble, and he was always a very nice guy. Yeah, I mean, genuinely a very nice guy. Mm. Uh, again, as a sort of journalist, it was quite fascinating that Zola was named Footballer of the Year in 97 and he wasn't even there the full season. How how deserving do you feel he was of that award? Well, I voted for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah by, by far the best player of that season, yeah. And just, just for, sort of finally, before we do move on to the next book, but where would you rank the signing of Zola for Chelsea compared to the others? And sort of 
not just sort of the others since Roman Abramovich, but others sort of in that sort of era of the like the late nineties to early noughties. Because for me, I thought it was the it was one of the main catalysts for Chelsea going to the next level. I, I still think he's the, the best player I've ever seen in a Chelsea shirt for me. And there's been some phenomenal. There's been talent. some big players, yes. But um, I, I just think he was just magical in some of the things he did. You know, like Hazard, but he could he could do it even better sometimes. Mm. Like Meta, but you know, he was faster and, and could score more goals. And, and, and clearly, dead ball um, was, was just superb to watch. Uh, but he, he he could conjure certain things that, that um, I just think he was quite an extraordinary player. Well, again, his book. If you can find it online or if you can find it from a decent bookstore, you know, I, I do urge you because it, it is a great book to know about, you know, Zola, the impact he had on the Premiership and on Chelsea Football Club in the late 90s. So try and find it if you can. The last book, and this one did fascinate me. So we might go sort of in, in the weeds a little bit here, Harry. So I apologize in advance for this. Um, the Viali Diary, for, and this covered the 98 99 season. Now, sort of moving on a little bit from Rude Hulitz here, what what were your memories of the, the 98-99 season, covering it as a football fan and also as a journalist? I just think Chelsea had such a, a an interesting team to watch because it, it, it was um, hugely attacking football, skillful football, uh, and they collected so many trophies along the way, particularly you know, watching them in Europe was, was wonderful to see. Um, uh, you know, those teams were every bit as good as the teams that cost billions to put together, you know. And some of the players came relatively cheap. Um, but it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a quality of football that I enjoyed particularly. Mm. The season before the 97-98, you're referring to when Chelsea, you know, did, did win some trophies. We won the League Cup. In the final against Middlesbrough, we had a fantastic sort of journey in the Cup Winners' Cup where we beat Stuttgart in the final when Zola scored, a, you know, just I think it was obviously his first touch when he came on in that final. But of course, Rude Hullet left with Gianluca Vialli taking over. Did, did touch on it a little bit earlier, but just for this particular context, what was the reaction from the media of this change and the fact that Chelsea were doing quite well in the league as well in that particular season. Was there massive shock or in, in your opinion, you more, I could see this coming? I don't think anyone could see it coming so early in the season. I think it was a bit of a shock. And, and I think uh, the media were fascinated to try and find out what was going on. Um, and there were so many different reasons being thrown out there. And um, I, I think you, you just accepted the fact that the the, 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 um, the briefings were that, you know, the, there was a big breakdown over the negotiations on the new contract. Um, and this great phrase, Neto, emerged, didn't it? And mm. So it was wonderful headline news for weeks. <laughs> it, was, it was good. It was a good place to be to watch the football and the drama behind the scenes. It was, it was fascinating. Did you hear at the time that the relationship broke down before this decision was made? You know, did you sort of maybe hear rumblings maybe weeks sort of beforehand? Or again, was this a case of one minute everything's rosy, the next minute he's at the door? No, I, well, obviously, because of my relationship with Ken Bates, I, I, I knew weeks 
months before. Right. Um, there were rumblings of discontent. Right. Just for clarity, was it to do with back? Was it to do with you know maybe transfers, maybe coming in players sort of trying to come out, or any issues with player power or anything like that? I, I think it would surprise you what the issues were. As I said, I can't remember which one, but I think I've touched it on one of the books. Hmm. Okay. And it's a, if you've read them all very carefully, you'll find there's an extraordinarily unusual reason that was added to the mix. If it's the book that I'm thinking of, then I did read it. Um, we're going to touch on him now. Why do you think at the time Viali was the chosen one? Because it was, you know, looking back, it was maybe a bit of a risk to have maybe another, you know, player manager at that time because obviously it happened with Hullet. Could there have been a, maybe a chance that Chelsea could have gone for a more experienced manager at that point? I think, I, I think Viali was appointed for the same reasons Rukulik was appointed, but with, with a, uh, a a more firmer belief that it would work because the big risk was Gullit to start with, you know, player manager. Then, then he wouldn't become manager, not player manager anymore. Um, uh, that was the big risk, but it, it, it worked. It was phenomenally successful to a point. Um, and they thought, well, you know, if, if that structure worked, player manager, yeah, worked there, let's do it again. Yeah. So I, I think there was less of a, a worry. It was so much of a risk, still a risk, but less of a worry because what happened with Rudd. So it was also the finances, you know, we're paying them already. <laughs> so mm-hmm. then get on with it. And, you know, they knew that a, a large proportion of the dressing room probably felt sorry for him the way they'd been treated by Rudd. Um, mm. So, you know, it, it, it didn't seem much, so much of a risk, I don't think, right. as it might have done to the fans, as it was in the boardroom. So the boardroom and Bates really decided they, they agreed with him. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. Um, so we'll just go a little bit sideways just for just for one minute. In all three of the books that we, you know, we, we sort of touched on today and I've gone through in detail the last week, one man's popped up continuously and that's Graham Ricks. Now in the late 90s for Chelsea, you know, he was obviously part of the backroom staff. How big of an influence was he in the dressing room for Chelsea, do you know? And even to the club itself, because it seemed that, you know, he was part of Rude Hullet's backroom team. He was in part of Viali's backroom team. And he, based on sort of the books that I've I've read, he sort of seemed to really sort of gel the sort of, how can I put it mildly? He, he sort of gelled the, the relationship between manager and players. He was that sort of buffer that if you know any players had an issue, he would go to Ricks, and then Ricks would obviously then go sort of go to Hullet. What was your, you know, what was your dealings like with Graham Ricks? If you had, if you had any, and what do you think his importance was to Chelsea Football Club at that time? Yeah, I mean, um, I've, I've known Graham Ricks many years when he played for Arsenal. I was there in that um, cup final when he missed his penalty. Uh, everyone remembers his penalty, but. Uh, um, Liam Brady also missed a penalty in the same game. Uh, and I've known him many years. Uh, and he is influential in so much as, you know, he's a great footballing talent as a player and a great, you know, he was a good coach. Um, and he had the ear of the players and, uh, yeah, as you say, acted as a buffer. But, you know, the, the real influences there were uh, the managers and the chairman. Mm. Uh, there was not, not a lot of, of, of grey right. uh, with a grey beard. 
Um, he, he was in charge and um, he, he wanted to know what was going on in the dressing room. Mm. People might be telling him what's going on in the dressing room. Uh, so nothing's changed that happens in modern day game. Um, but, you know, the, the, the big powerhouse at that club at the time was, was, the, was the managers, but more importantly, the chairman. Mm. I, again, it, it, it does fascinate me while talking about Ken Bates, because again, you know, as a kid and even a teenager, I had this sort of image of Bates or how he was as a chairman. And then obviously speaking to people like yourself, some of it's changing, some of it's not. When you sort of discuss with, with Bates and the fact that he wanted to know everything that was going on, you know, first team and everything else, did he have say, for example, snitches in the Chelsea camp and such, you know, so if a manager perhaps maybe had an idea, but, you know, it wasn't sort of going to come across yet, did somebody, for example, then give say to Ken Bates, oh, this is what could be happening, for, for example, or was there nothing like that at all? I think there was a lot of that. Right. <laughs> right. I see. It, it, it's, I'm not um, saying it's a bad thing. It, it, again, for me, it's, it's fascinating because I sort of see Ken Bates as this particular guy, and again, he's been successful as you know as an owner, and you know he's 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 done fantastic for Chelsea. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm not knocking him at all, but I just sort of have this little vision of him, you know, in the boardroom, and he wants he wants to know everything, and you know, based again based on sort of reading the books, the fact you know with him and Rude Hullet's relationship obviously breaking down, I just sort of see this image of him maybe having some snitches in the camp, telling him certain things that maybe the manager or whoever didn't want. Didn't quite, didn't quite work like that. Didn't so, work like that, right. You know, so if you want to know how it worked, you really need to speak to Gwyn Williams. Gotcha. And I'm sure he won't tell you. <laughs> no, no, that's probably not, no. <laughs> no, probably not. To be fair, on the Blue Day podcast, that that that, that name has come up before. Um Sort of, let's just sort of move on. Let's just sort of go uh, sort of more to that season. The signing of Marcel Desailly, again, we sort of discussed about the signing of Viali. You know, signing you know, Desailly, who, you know, in the 98-99, he won the World Cup for France in 98. You know, this was a huge signing for Chelsea. How big of a sort of coup was this to sign Desailly for Chelsea? Well, it was, it was part of what was happening at the time. Mm. You know, uh, these guys were uh, attracted to the club because of the quality of the players that got gone there. By by, they were all fascinated to see what was going on. You know, uh, and uh, even clubs like Man United didn't have that kind of um, attraction. You know, they mm. it was kind of like it was it was sold quite simply but you you're, you're going to be in, in a dressing room full of these great players that you know about you've played with times you've played against you only in your leagues you've played in um you have a rapport with them they're speaking the same kind of football language as you that kind of football but you're also going to be playing in you know and living in london you know it rains in manchester all the time <laughs> the sun shines in london where do you want to be <laughs> And it was as simple as that, you know, <clears throat> they could pick and choose, but they, they, they you know, they're coming to the end of their careers. <clears throat> they still had a few years left. And, and the English football extended that because, uh, you know, because of all the reasons we've talked about. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, 
know, Jürgen Klinsmann used to drive around in a little Volkswagen around London, you know, and he loved he loved being in London. You know, why would he want to go to Manchester if he was coming to English football? Why would he want to experience English culture in London? Mm. I don't want to, you know, be stuck at home because I can't go out because it's pissing the rain every day, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's sort of something. I think that happens sort of still now. I think if you look at the top players, again, well, to you obviously... A degree, to, to a degree. To a degree, but, probably not as much as it was before, but no, obviously I mean, with... If, if Pogba wants to go experience life in London, that's fine. But I don't think the London clubs are going to pay him £500,000 a week. Like no, that. certainly not. I don't think they would sort of pay 80 to £100 million for him either. I, don't, I no. can't see that. Um, now, in this particular book, what caught my attention... That you know, it was announced that the Cup Winners' Cup was going to be axed at the end of the season, and it was sort of it, it was for the purpose of expanding the Champions League, the amount of teams that would go into the you know the Premier European competition. This was to thwart plans of a European Super League that was discussed in the late nineties. Now, roll on twenty twenty one, and where there's still talk of a breakaway European Super League. The fact that there was talk about this in the late 90s and there's still talk about this to this day, do you believe this will ever happen or do you just believe this is one man's crazy dream that is is going to stay a dream? Well, I mean, <clears throat> funny enough, I discussed this at great length with Ken Bates at that time, you know, going back all those years. And, and he said, look, you know, do we really need FIFA? Do we need UEFA? Because what are they? There's just little, you know, they set themselves up with an office in Zurich and they run, run the game. But now the clubs are running the game. And, and since then, we've had a, 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 an association of European clubs and we have an association of European players and we have association this and association of that. But the, 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 the upshot is very simply this. And, and the, the Champions League is, in effect, the European Super League breakaway. That's what it is. So, you know... You can't have a breakaway. You can't have that breakaway from UEFA and FIFA in particular <clears throat> because the players want to play in the World Cup. Now, if you break away, you, all that they say is fine, do whatever you want, but you will not play in the European Championships. You're not playing the World Cup. So would those players f- forsake that to, to, to go into a European Super League? They might get a few more bob, but they get so much money anyway. I don't think they would. They, you know, they want to play in World Cups. Ken Bates said, "Well, he is. We get shot of them, and we form our own World Cup." Okay, interesting. That was his, that was his theory, but the, the thing is, that takes a lot of organisation, takes a lot of you know aggro. But you know, they had it with breakaway of the Premier League. They could mm. see it could be done, um, and that that's what he advocated. He he wanted to get rid of FIFA and UEFA and set up. Well, now we have a, a European Association of Leagues, but he wanted to set that up and run the World Game and organise a World Cup. That's interesting. But I don't think he could carry anyone to you know, take all that burden on. Yeah. And so you let FIFA run away with it, all the corruption we've seen as a result of it. And he said, well, you know, what, we could eliminate all that corruption by just running the World Game ourselves. Mm. You know, you know, as you said, 80 to 90% of, of all the players in the World Cup, certainly the tail end of a World Cup, all play in Europe. They don't play in Africa. They don't play in Australia. They don't play in America. You know, um, they, they play 
in, in, the, in the powerhouses of Europe. You only need to carry those and, and you've, you've got a World Cup. Hmm. That's fascinating. With Viali's time as manager, obviously we discussed about Ken Bates. Did Viali's relationship with Bates ever turn rocky this particular period or was this sort of later on towards Viali's sort of, you know, dismissal back in 2000? I think Viali was a completely different animal to uh, Rude. You know, Rude was more aloof. He was playing his golf. He had his social scene. He had his um, girlfriends and he had his social life. And uh, Viali played golf as well. Played, he used to play with, with Rude. But, you know, he, he was more um, amenable to um, uh, whatever his chairman was. Inter- you know, he had, a, he had an Italian mentality to, to, to football where... The owner and the chairman was to be totally and utterly obeyed and respected, and you did what he wanted. And I don't think Wood had that kind of mentality. You know, he thought the manager and the top players were, were, were the essence of a football club, and he'd, he'd seen how it'd been run in Italian football and how um, you, you were always battling against the uh, owners. But um, uh, here, um, it, there was a different way of going about it. And I think Viali was able to adapt much better than Rudd was. Right. This particular season as well was pivotal, excuse me, for a young man by the name of John Terry. He made his debut for the club, albeit from the bench against Aston Villa in the League Cup. What has been JT like as a person and what what was he like to interact with for you? You know, obviously since the time where he's been club captain, he's won Premier Leagues, he's won, you know, a whole host of trophies. What's, what's JT like as a person for those that maybe have never had the pleasure of meeting him? Well, he <clears throat> wasn't an easy person to get under his, under his skin to find that out, actually. Um, but what, what I would say about John Terry, he, from early on and right away through his career, he was hugely respectful. And, and he came across, you know, uh, as someone who was... Respectful of the people who own the club, respectful of the journalists who wrote about the club, respectful of uh, um, identifying with the club. So he would always be in a, in a club blazer and a tie and, and well turned out. Uh, and um, I, I think he was uh, a massively influential uh, captain of, of Chelsea. Can you see him in the, I don't know, obviously with what happened to Frank sort of this year, but could you see John Terry return to Chelsea as a manager one day? Well, I think everyone's come back to Chelsea one day. I mean, <laughs> it's a turnover, isn't it? I mean, you might get the job one day. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, well, I that's what he wants to do. And I think he was mm. very, personally, knowing him, I think miffed when Frank got the job ahead of him. And I think he took... Uh, a, a more realistic path to becoming Chelsea manager. You know, le- learning what it's like to be on that, you know, in, involved in all of that. And he's doing that at Aston Villa. Um, it'll be interesting when he gets his first job. Um, and I think, uh, I, I think he's taking more of the path of one or two other players who know they need to experience at management, you know, um, uh, to lead them to where they want to end up. Uh, and I think John Terry's taking that path. Uh, and it's a slower path. It's got, he's got to be very patient about it. 
Um, but, you know, I think he'll get there in the end. Mm. But the, the problem he's got is that, and this is why I probably myth that Frank got to, got to the job first, is that uh, Abramovich has never appointed an English coach. Frank was the first. Uh, and after the experience with Frank, he could well be the last. Because it's not that Frank wasn't potentially would be good at the job. Um, Abramovich wants ready-made players, managers to give him instant success. And his view is, well, if I'm paying a quarter of a million pounds to start the season, I expect to get a better return than I've got. Um, And despite what Frank achieved last season with no new signings and how he he, uh, galvanised all those youngsters, it was was refreshing to see. But you you always thought, well, when Frank gets his own team and he gets the signings in, you know, it'd be a formidable new Chelsea and it wasn't. Mm. Unfortunately, it just didn't work. Mm. Now, we've discussed, obviously, John Terry that sort of came into the side um, in the 98-99 season. Excuse me. One player that was in the side that was bought by Chelsea in the summer of 98 that didn't last long was Brian Laudrup. Now, it was interesting reading back on the notes and I've sort of looked at internet sort of, you know, columns about Brian Laudrup's time at Chelsea as well. I just want to sort of ask you, Harry, if I can, how how do you feel Chelsea was disappointed that this move didn't work out the way it wanted to? And looking back, who do you believe was to blame for the fact that this move, you know, Brian Laudrup's time at Chelsea only lasted a mere two to three months? Perhaps they got the wrong nail dribble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, no, I think... Um... It, it, it happens in today's game, you know. You, you, mm. With Chelsea, um, we just talked about a quarter of a billion pound on all these new players, and, and, and a couple of them have come in, um, like a Brian Laudrup, you know, gifted players, uh, wingers, um, great reputations. You see clips of them, you know, nutmegging three players and going on and scoring a goal. And they come along at Chelsea, and thus far, it's like, wow. They're the same bloke, you know. They're just it, it, sometimes it isn't easy. So you get a lot of success rates, and we've talked about all of those, you know, the droppers and the zolas, Hazard, all different people. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't work. It, it, sometimes it, the, the character just doesn't adapt. Um, you can't can't um, adapt to the style of football. Can't adapt to the pace of the game. Can't adapt to the style of the game. Um, and their game just doesn't adapt, and uh, maybe that was the case. Mm. I can't, you can't, you can't pinpoint it. I mean, why? Why wouldn't such a great talent have hit it off? But sometimes, even better players than him, uh, Shevchenko, who was the greatest goal scorer in European football at the time, greatest goal scorer in the Champions League, mm. um, just didn't score enough goals. And didn't he? he did score goals, but just not enough. Um, and wasn't consistent and <clears throat> looked out of place. How, how is that possible? Yeah. So it doesn't always work. No, that's true. One striker, obviously talk about Shevchenko, but one striker that came in, unfortunately he didn't have the success rate he, he could have had, but that's, it, was, it was to do with injury, was um, Pierre Kazaragi. Obviously he picked up a, a you know, career-ending injury against West Ham away, 
some Chelsea fans I've spoken to about this when I've spoken about the you know, the ninety eight ninety nine season and how Chelsea were successful back then. I've spoke to them about Kazaragi and that particular season, and you know a lot of them have said to me that if Chelsea were brave enough to bring in a replacement for Kazaragi, they felt Chelsea could have won the league that season. Do you agree with that assessment or do you feel that Chelsea were right to, you know, hold fire a little bit and wait until, you know, the time would come to maybe get someone else in, you know, because again, sort of looking back and reading your book, it was a case of, you know, seeing what would happen later on down the line. But a lot of the times Chelsea didn't have enough funds in the bank to, you know, buy somebody else. Well, I think that sums it up. You know, it's, some, sometimes it's not just a question of, you know, this would be a great idea. Kassarabi, for me, was was one of the best centre-forwards you're ever likely to see. Uh, and he had it all. Um, and it's a shame, again, he was at Chelsea at the end of his career. I mean, but, um, but it depends if you've got the finances, what the clubs, you know, there's so many factors other than just, oh, that would be a good idea, let's just go and get a good player in. But that point of the season isn't always easy. Funds are, are difficult. You know, let's wait till the end of the season when you've got more of a choice and, you know, they've not been asked premium prices. So many factors come into it that you can't say that this is what they should have done. You know, from the outside, yeah, of course you would. It's easy, but it's not so easy when you have to do it. Of course. Um, Harry, just a couple more questions before I do eventually let you go today. One bit in this book that it, it did make me smile and I had to sort of re- read it a couple of times. According to reports, Chelsea were interested in taking Les Ferdinand on loan, allegedly, as part of, you know, with Kazaragi being injured. However, there was a rule in place for Premier League clubs. Do you remember what this particular rule was? No idea. Apparently, allegedly... Um, Premier League clubs were not allowed to loan each other players. No. So, uh, now, could you could you imagine that rule being in place today? That a Premier uh, League club could not buy somebody else on loan. That would well, be interesting. There, there, there's quite good merits in that, isn't there? Because um, very recently we saw a case where, uh, was it West Brom and uh, West Ham uh, Snodgrass was it? That's right. Was. Yes, but they, you know, they had a side agreement where, okay, we loan you to him, but you can't play him against us. Which... I think Snodgrass was bought though, wasn't he? I think that was different. So was it another player? I mean, uh, no, they, no. I, I think that the story, the story that I heard, oh yeah, they was, bought uh, him. They, they bought, bought him. him, but they had so an it's agreement. It's even worse when you're loaning players because then you have more. So your parent club has more control. So there's there's a great deal of potential for abuse. I remember the, when Chelsea signed Scott Parker from Charlton uh, in the summer, uh, summer, January 2004. And when we were playing Charlton, this was about February time, Parker didn't play. And it wasn't a case of Parker was injured. It was a case of the, the clubs both had an agreement that Parker would not play against Charlton that season. And I, I so when I was looking at that and then I was looking back on sort of other incidences linked to this, I found it fascinating that, you know, some clubs could have that potential gentleman's agreement that in certain quarters is allowed and certain quarters it's not. That's why it's open to abuse. But also I think that rule may well, I mean, it's a long time ago and it's, there's so many rules. 
Um, yeah, maybe it was that you couldn't loan between the clubs during the course of the season. And, and the right. loan structure would happen at the end. So it, it could be done with more time so they could see all the paperwork and they could see all the, what was going on. Mm. And it, it's more open to abuse during the season because, you know, if, you, if your mate, you know, your son might be managing the team and you might, you might say to him, like Darren Ferguson did, um, Oh, could you loan me half of your reserve team during the course of the season so I can, I can get out of relegation? Okay, no problem. There you go. Um, you know, sort, yeah. sort that out. You know, it, it, it's certainly open to abuse. Mm. And mm. over the course of the years has been abuse. So maybe they just brought that in. Um, and then they change it, you know, because the paperwork is tighter. It, 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 there's so many sh- shenanigans go on in football, as you can imagine. Yes, but it's hard for the, for the authorities to keep pace with, with the, ne- the the next big thing in, in 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 doing something you know circumventing the rules. So uh, doesn't surprise me. Harry, just finally on the sort of ninety eight ninety nine season, what what was your assessment of sort of Chelsea that year? Do you feel season climax that Chelsea could have won the league, and do you feel overall that? The amount of sort of signings that they made, the amount of money they spent that season, the fact that Chelsea didn't win anything. Do you feel that that was a particular failure for the for the club that year? Um, not particularly. No, I think I think um, that's probably how it was viewed at the time. As we was talking about, you know, yeah. the, the more success you have, the more you want, and then when, mm. it's, it's pretty hard to take when you don't you don't achieve it when you think you should, uh, and that's why managers come and go so regularly. Mm. Well, Chelsea did reach third that season and they'd obviously got Champions League football for the first time. So I think that, you know, yes, there might not have been trophy, but the fact that Chelsea did reach the premier European competition, I've sort of looked back on it. Okay, they were disappointed against Real Mallorca in the Cup Winners' Cup. They lost um, sort of, I believe it was uh, 2-1 on aggregate. They didn't do well in the League Cup and all the FA Cup, but... I thought overall it was a progressive season. The fact that they brought in new players and a lot of players went out. So I I personally thought it was a constructive season that probably helped the next season by winning the FA Cup in 99-2000. Personally, that's my opinion anyway. Well, you're probably right because, um, and and it's now become more accepted, probably not so much at that particular time. But um, if you finish in the top four and qualify for the Champions League now, it, it's it's accepted at the top clubs as far more far far more successful than winning any domestic cup. Mm. So you could go the season without winning a trophy, but um, point about it is you you qualify for the Champions. That's the place to be. Yeah. Just finally, Harry, before we let you go today, and you can, obviously you can enjoy the rest of your weekend, um, just for the Chelsea listeners that perhaps like to buy your book more easily accessible than the ones that we're discussing, just sort of tell us about your sort of recent Chelsea book that you've, you've written and sort of, sort of more details about it. So if anyone wanted to buy it, you know, they could. Yeah, it's, the, it's called The Boss, and it's um, a history of their managers from Alex Stock to Frank Lampard and we've just updated it with um, a chapter about the new manager and we've left some space uh, in case there's a manager after him. <laughs> but of course it is a, you know, uh, 
they've had some fantastic characters, and we've talked about a few of them as managers at the club. But uh, yes, you know, um, I, I enjoyed writing it, and I interviewed a lot of the players in each generation and each manager in each segment, you know, and, and, and get an insight about what their managers were like. Um, and it's um, been a hugely successful book. Uh, I'm still hoping you, it's attainable. Um, I think there's a few copies left. Uh, but um, in 10 years' time, if we're still talking about this, you'll be um, paying an absolute arm and a leg for one of these copies of this book. <laughs> More than likely, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Mr. Harris, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Blue Day podcast today. Thank you very much for your time. But it's been a pleasure to have your insight on Chelsea in the late 90s. Anytime. Fantastic. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Bueno, nos vamos. Aquí tiene su cuenta. Espere, diez mil dólares. Así es, las cervezas, hamburguesas, alitas, postre, la multa por conducir borracho a casa, licencia suspendida, días de cárcel, días de trabajo perdidos. Ya sabe, todo lo que involucra obtener un DUI. Bueno, y lo que quiera dejar de propina. No pagues el precio de tomar y manejar. Te puede salir caro. Maneja tomado y serás arrestado. Un mensaje de Netza.